Well, here we are. 4.03 and 16 seconds, which means that we're way ahead of schedule. Only, only four minutes late or three minutes late, which for us is way ahead of schedule. Before I get started, today is the feast day of trumpets. And um, uh, obviously the feast day of trumpets is associated with the abduction of the bride. And we would have expected or hoped for the abduction of the bride to have occurred in the last three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's a three-day festival because it's very difficult for the Jewish people to reckon when the feast day of trumpets occurs. So they, they take multiple days in order to accomplish the certainty of having it. They do all say there is no dispute that uh, Adam, of course, Genesis 2-7, occurred on this day, this particular feast day. And this, of course, would be, therefore, the complementary birth of Christ, uh, not in the summer or the winter solstice. As you know, the winter solstice, uh, December 25th, was always the solstice until they finally corrected it when the mathematics and the astrophysics and the cosmologists finally figured out that it was really the 21st of December. But today, a wonderful day. Uh, obviously, we always have the hope that uh, the rapture or the abduction of the church is going to occur. We're watching this world. My gosh, every time we turn around, something more is occurring in our country, and we know it's occurring all over the world. We have darkness all over the world rising up. Anarchy. This rebellion against governance uh, is spreading all over the, the, the globe, which uh, makes it a worldwide event. Every time there's a worldwide issue, pay attention because um, that is uh, Luke 21, right? Mark 13. So, okay, enough of that. That was the announcement portion. The children can you, you run for your lives. Uh, we, we have none, though. Obviously. Okay. September the 20th, 2020, lecture discussion number 116 on the book of Joel Daniel, Revelation Ecclesiastes. And if you've been following along recently, last dozen lectures or so, uh, you'll know, maybe remember, probably not, the theological implications of zero infinity. We covered that subject. We went into horizontal asymptotes. Asymptotes, which is related to zero infinity and microbiological complexity. All of that stuff we've done, which, of course, is angiotensin converting enzymes and CD147 cluster differentiation 147, which, as you know, is uh, we were covering that because of uh, just the catalytic process and, uh, and virus reproduction. Uh, after those, that's that group of subjects. We, uh, I think, if I'm in order, we went to the day and the days of the Son of Man, and the day and the days of Noah, and the day and the days of Lot, and their interconnectivity, which raised uh, a bunch of obvious questions. Uh, why are the days of Noah and Lot returning being foremost, in my opinion, resuscitated, if you will? Here they come again. Christ said, Luke 17, they're coming back. And all the rest of the questions in the context of, uh, along with all the rest of the questions in context of Luke 17, um, we need to know why this is happening. Why Noah was singled out and Lot was singing out, singled out with respect to their context. We know it's characterized by great wickedness. God describes it as exceedingly great evil. Uh, depravity of a level that we can't comprehend, Genesis 6-5, Genesis 13-13. And so the obvious conclusion then is that the day and the days of the Son of Man will be likewise a time of pervasive evil. And I think that we're starting to see uh, pervasive evil. This country will have a difficult time having an election. There's so much hatred. So, there's so many people in this country that hate the country. I mentioned this a while back. I listened to a commentator ask the question, can you govern a country that you despise? And obviously you cannot. What is the nature of, this, this, the, of the despising? Do I need to move over? Oh, this is not being pushed. Not my fault. Let's all admit that I didn't do it wrong. Okay, as long as we know. I push record, and then I wait, and then you tell me what to do now, 
And then I push it again now. You're welcome. Once again, let the record show that I have complete innocence. Well, not complete, but I mean close enough. Significant innocence. How's that? That's a relative term. Yeah, I don't remember this. I obviously am an old man. And I went through the Vietnam era when there was a great deal of resentment towards the government. But I don't think it even comes close to what's out there now. The, the academic uh, collective is against this country. And they have indoctrinated children now for 40 years. And there is no respect for the history or there is no, uh, there is no concern for the history of this country or for the people that sacrificed. So I think we're seeing something un- unprecedented, at least with respect to the United States government or the United States as a whole. So to repeat a little bit, why does this level of evil that comes out of Genesis 6 and Genesis 13 and Genesis 19, why is it recycling? Why is that the evil that comes back? Why is that the evil that Christ specifies? So this recurrent darkness, again, is specific. In other words, it's a depravity that we won't recognize because it hasn't happened in our lifetime or even our era, if you will, as a country. It hasn't happened for thousands of years, not seen since Noah and Lot. So what exactly should we, the church, what should we be watching for? And I've made my speculative, uh, I believe, uh, reasonably informed uh, positions on that matter known by looking at what I believe is happening. Again, you must have a position on Sodom and you must have a position on Genesis 6 that says this is different. This evil is not the same as normal evil, if you want to think of it. This is a higher level of evil. And I, of course, have concluded that it is genetic manipulation that is at play. Primarily, other issues um, included that I've done in the last few Sundays were consciousness and mathematics, because that to me is an indicative element here, because consciousness affects matter. So I have something that is not physical affecting something that is physical and consciousness cannot be computed in other words, there's no mathematical component to it. I can't apply mathematics to consciousness. Consciousness is not computable, is a common phrase in physics. Mathematics cannot predict free will. That, the implications of that theologically are quite profound. It tells us something about ourselves and about the creation. And those subjects, uh, just those views, that, that led to the origin, if you will, the original purposes of the immune response system. Uh, what C.S. Lewis called the problem with pain. Hopefully you remember me bringing that out. Uh, and then we went to Messiah cut off, but not for himself. He's cut off, but not for himself. Cut off meaning that there is a death uh, process for him. But he, he's not doing anything for himself. So who is he obviously doing it for? Daniel 9, 26. Uh, from there, the ashes of the red heifer, because Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 are solved by the ashes of the red heifer. So that's just to recount and name a few of the subjects that have come up lately. Last dozen, as, as I said, maybe uh, 10 lectures back. Uh, and lately, of course, um, last week, clean board, uh, we're taking on the typological aspects of Adam and Moses. Both Adam and Moses being set apart in Scripture. They are not the same. They are different. They testify of Jesus Christ, Romans 5.14, Deuteronomy 18.15. They're specifically defined, definitively defined as types of Christ. That makes them again set apart. So we went about comparing the death of Moses with the death of Christ and the death of Adam. That's what we did. And that, of course, took us to the body of Adam and the body of Christ and the body of Moses. So that's Genesis 2-7. Uh, and we're looking at the, what Adam's body went through at Genesis 2-7 and then what Christ's body went through during his entombment. Uh, 
And I made the point last week, or I hope I did, and I can't remember because I don't always remember things very well, but I'm pretty sure I made it here. The body of Jesus Christ, the Holy One, Psalm 16:10, did not go into corruption because it cannot go into corruption. And there is Adam's body likewise laying in a state, in a status, before he received the breath of the spirit of life that obviously did not go into corruption. Adam's body was without his soul, his mind, and his spirit for a period of time, in my opinion. I want to know how long a period of time that was. What, in fact, was the length of the interval between the forming of the body and then the importing, if you will, of the breath of the spirit of life. I want to, to emphasize the importance of this, I think. I hope, uh, I want all of you, Internet audience included, especially, obviously, since the audience here, how do I put it? A little bit, uh, it is non-robust. How's that? Uh, uh, anyway, I want to think about the circumstances and consider the totality of the forming of the body of Adam, all the elements that are surrounding that, because there are many of them. Uh, Genesis 2-7, the body of Adam is created, formed from dust, and again, just sits there, in my view, until 7:22, where the breath of the spirit of life. Genesis 7:22 describes the breath as the breath of God as the breath of the spirit of life. And then it comes. And I hope I made the points as much as I could that this is witnessed by the entire angelic host. There's no possibility it was, it was not, in my view. He, God did not do this in secret. He did this in plain view. He did this in a way that made it obvious that they were supposed to watch this. And again, fallen and unfallen have gathered. And why did they gather? They, they gather, they always gather. They always watch these kinds of things. That, I, I hope that I made, I made the, the right amount of effort. That, um, that that element is the key to it. In the timeline of Genesis 2-7, because I'm going to call it a timeline. So I have the formation of the body. 2-7 Genesis. Now I have an interval, I believe, until the breath hits. I want to know the length of that interval. I know I have an audience. And I believe he had an anatomy where he gave them a chance to, uh, if you wish, talk among themselves. To consider what he is doing. I think he did it slowly. I believe that that's defensible. So God breathes the soul. There's a timeline. God breathes the soul spirit into the body of Adam. And at that point, that is the definition of living being. Living being. That's when living being occurs right there. If that interval is correct, then this period of time he is not defined as a living being. Not here and not throughout there. This is where he's defined as a living being. I believe that is critical information. Uh, and and something, that's something we should concentrate on. But first and foremost in that discussion is we have to define this term, living being. What is a living being? Not as if we define it, because we're what? That's right, we're idiots. Uh, I'll prove that in a second. It's extremely important to know what God says a living being is. He did not call the formation of the body a living being. This is what he called a living being when he combined the two. Uh, So what did he call this? What is that? So, again, the breath of the spirit of life, that includes the mind. So right here is where I get the spirit, I get the soul, I get consciousness. I get the mind. All of those are almost interchangeable. That is when Adam became a living being. So now I have some obvious questions. 
Was the state of the body in that interval? Was the state of the body? Uh, let me reword it. What was the state of the body would be better. Was the autonomic nervous system fully operational from here to here? Did the heart and the lungs, the cardiopulmonary system, was it commissioned? Was it an, an automated structure, if you will? The electrical automaticity of the heart, the contractual relaxation, the pulsing, if you will, of the circulatory cycle, or the, the heart. Uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you? Yes, the heart-brain exchange. I have all of the facets of the autonomic nervous system, the exchanging of oxygen and carbon dioxide, the, the capillaries and the alveoli. Was all of that operational? Or did it become operational when the living being portion, the breath, comes in? Is that when it starts? Now, we can make some assessments, can't we? If we do, we're going to have to transfer it to what? Yeah, that's correct. We're going to, have to transfer it uh, to uh, uh, the beginning of a child. But I do not have the position that Adam was a child, created as a child. Though, listen, if I find out that's correct, I certainly won't be surprised. Obviously, if the autonomic nervous system was fully commissioned, um, and if the heart and the lungs are operating, then so too is the entirety of the body, because there's incredible motion going on in a human body. And in all living beings' bodies, especially at the microscopic level, the cellular function, the metabolic function, all of that's occurring. If this was the status of the body of Adam then, how long did that body of Adam remain in a status like that? Where it's just laying there without him in it. So I have a body almost in a suspended condition waiting for the person to be imported into it. And how long did the angels then have to watch this? And what did they think? What did they assume was God's intent here? They would be immediately be assigning something to this. And when he breathed on that body, they would know that's what he did. They would see the body and then they would see the breath. They would see the whole thing go. Keep in mind a little play in all words there. Keep in mind. Okay, I, I, didn't, I had no expectation, expectation that anybody would notice that. So I had to stop and point it out, which means it's not nearly as funny. Keep in mind that the Bible is unequivocal. It does not allow controversy. Living beings are never defined as a body. Never defines a living being as a body. When he says living being, this is what he means. Living beings are a soul, a mind, with a body. Who would know that? Who would know that living beings, when we define living beings, we define living beings as a soul, a spirit, consciousness, a mind that is inside of a body. But angels would know that the body has no value to the living being portion, wouldn't they? Hebrews 1.14. They are disembodied in the sense. They have no physical body. We think some of them might. That's the cherubim and the seraphim. They obviously have function, complete function. The personhood, again, re resides with the soul, spirit, the mind. The body is merely the vehicle through which the mind is revealed. The common example is a guitar. Notice I didn't say trumpet or banjo. Uh, we were sent something from the, the son, Eric. Should I say his name? Because, you know, the people are after him again. You know, the creditors, the IRS, the Selective Service, Social Security, because of all of that fraud that he's done. 
Obviously, the FBI and the CIA, they're, they're after him. But now they know his name is Eric with a K. Anyway, he sent us something that was pretty funny. He said um, um, a woman was writing about the fact that her husband had taken up the trumpet. And she said, the trumpet is an instrument of biblical destruction. And she said, when, what, are you, what you do, because he was play, trying to play the trumpet. And I know exactly how he feels. The whole neighborhood is uh, aware that I attempt to play the trumpet much to their dismay. And she said, she wrote this and it just killed us. We just thought it was so funny. She thought it, Lori thought it was particularly funny because of her sympathetic uh, understanding of it. But a trumpet is defined as a device where compressed air goes in one end and divorce comes out the other. And, and I thought that was wonderfully said. I have to get my, I have to get my, And, and I prove that every time I play it. Uh, I will say this, that all those videos you see of dogs singing along with their owners, my two dogs come into where I play the trumpet, lay down, and howl. I don't know if it's uh, pain, that they're out of a, out of a sense of <laughs> discomfort. Actually, uh, they're miserable. Or they think that they sound better than me. Either one could be true or is obviously more likely. Okay, but the common example of guitar. The guitar is not the person, the musician. It is just the instrument from which the musician displays his capabilities. Um, and uh, so that's how the angels will, would look at a body. They would never think the body. They'd never confuse the body with with the person. And Judas, Genesis 2-7 establishes this fundamental principle. Man became, becomes a living being when the breath of life is breathed into the body. And Ecclesiastes 12, 6-7. I can't say enough about Ecclesiastes 12. I've been pounding away at it. Ecclesiastes 7 all of Ecclesiastes 6 through 7, 12, 6 through 7, all of Ecclesiastes 12. I mean, it, it cements the question here or the issue. The spirit, the soul, the mind is the controlling entity. The non-physical has authority over the physical. The spirit of life, the life is the spirit, is the spiritual. Which is uh, why I brought up Leviticus 17:11 a while back. And asked, asked, what does it God mean when he said the life is in the blood? And I've gotten some wonderful letters on that. The spirit of life, the breath of life, he says, is in the blood. The life is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. How does he define life? And this is how we got to Jude 9 and Deuteronomy 32, 7. Attempting to rescue, uh, attempting to uh, resolve, as a better word, the motives of Satan with respect to the body of Moses. Satan comes after the body of Moses. And we've been asking this question for quite some time, and I've given you a lot of time to think about it, and I know many of you have because you write to me and you talk to me about it. I get long-distance calls every now and then that go on for long periods of time, and this almost invariably comes up, and I'm thrilled that it does. I've said previously that the resurrection of the body is a critical proof of the gift of eternal existence. Remember me saying that? And note how I worded it. Eternal existence as opposed to eternal life. God has a definition of life. We have a tendency to think existence and life are something that he defines as equal. He does not. Life to him has a location, a destiny, a destination. Note that there's a difference between existence, eternal existence, and eternal life. And, and there is that difficult question arising again. Uh, definition of life as God defines it has layers to it. It is not a singular, simple uh, defining. It is incredibly complex. You know, you should know if you went to, if you took eighth grade biology. The biological science can't even define life. They've never been able to define life. 
They can't even begin to define life. All the, all the, they're useless with regard to that question. You ask a biological scientist, what is life? If he is honest, he will say, we have no idea. It is undefinable. What is life remains the unanswerable question of all of the unanswerable questions that confront mankind. Mankind has never been able to answer that question. Again, the biological scientists will describe life. They'll say reproductive capability. They'll say motion, blah, blah, blah. But that's describing it. That's not telling you what it is. It's a what is it? It's manna. It's the holy thing in the sense that they have no idea what it is that they're trying to define. They can't define it. Uh, I'm sorry. They can't even begin to describe Tell us anything about the nature of life. What it's made of. What is life made of? They know. They'll never say that because to say that becomes a theological question or a theological answer. Science is quite capable of describing obvious things, physical processes, for example. They are useless, utterly incompetent at defining life. Why is there life? How is there life? Who is the origin of life? I could go on and on. I could digress rant for 30 minutes into that, but I won't. I want to really bad. And I have done it in the past. And it's so hard not to keep pounding away at it. The academic construction, if you wish, of this country has destroyed so many things by refusing to admit they have no answer to any of those things. And they have, they have claimed that they do. And they never have. It's a lie. It's one of the great lies of academia. And once you've decided on the condition of Adam's body, see how we get back to Adam's body, then we can move on to Jude 9 and Deuteronomy 34, 7. And the, and the question of why does Christ say what he says at John eleven twenty five? He says there that he is the only one who will and is able to resurrect the body. He can do this. See, this isn't really a resurrection, is it? Well, wait a minute. He does breathe himself into that body, and that body is a living being. So we see something about resurrection here. I could easily make the case that this has a lot of similarity to a resurrection, a forming of a body and then the bringing in of the soul and the personhood, the mind. What's going to happen at a Rosh Hashanah near us someday? Not this one, obviously. Hopefully we still have time. Maybe he's using Alaska time for his feast day of trumpets. But at some trumpet, what is he going to do? The old joke, he's going to raise the Presbyterians first because they're the dead in Christ. It may not be funny to the Presbyterians, but that joke's been around for 50 years. Um, but he's going to raise the dead. What? I'm going to ask the same question, aren't I? He's going to raise the dead, the dead in Christ, and it's going to go really fast, a twinkling. Well, a twinkling is a what? A relative term. But it's a time period. I want to know how long, what is the time between the raising of the dead, and then what does he have to do? He has to put the body, or the spirit of that person back into their body. How long is that time? It can be, you, you want to call it microseconds if you want. Let's make it a mu and not a millisecond. Let's make it a microsecond. Okay. It's going to be very fast, but do you see the relationship? It looks very much like this. That is why Genesis 2-7 is there. I think it was extended in Genesis 2-7, but I, I think you'll recognize the anatomy. The steps of it are the same. He says, John 11:25, I am the, uh, the, resur- the only one who is able and willing to resurrect the body. I am the resurrection and the life. And notice how he connects the two of them. Because he did. He made two of them. He, he put life and resurrection together. 
Why does Christ, the breath of life, insist on resurrecting the bodies of all living beings? Notice how I said that. How does this prove existence? I've been asking that for weeks now. Does Satan know that the answer to that question, the reason that Christ is resurrecting bodies, the dead bodies, does he know, does Satan know that that, in fact, body resurrection will defeat his lie? If God God does this, his lie is defeated. Does he understand that? Does he understand the relationship between body resurrection and the lie of Satan? I think he obviously does. More questions to just throw out at you. Why does God test mankind? asked that a while back, a couple of weeks ago, maybe last week. What is this test that he's doing? He tests mankind. What's he testing for? What is the nature of the test? What's the entirety of the test? What is he testing for? Does he test the angelic host? Did he test the angelic host? If he did test the angelic host, what was that test? Is that the same test? Is that a different test? Did they pass it? I would say that there seems to be dispute there. Why does he test the angelic host and how did he do it? Let's keep going in this vein. You may not think it's in the vein, but it is. Why is true measurement impossible? Why is it that we know in physics that you can never truly measure anything? How is that related to God's test? Think about it. You'll get it. Why does timelessness have to? What does timelessness have to do with all of this? Because timelessness is key here. Satan understands the impact of timelessness. He is using the truth that God is outside of time and the Creator of time and it has time inside of Him. He's using that truth to attack. We have the uncertainty principle of Heisenberg. Heisenberg figured out something that's fantastically theological. He figured out the uncertainty principle. Again, why is true measurement impossible for created beings that are inside of time? Why does Christ split the Mount of Olives into two pieces? Remember that question? Why is the order of the seven saints from the cross the order of the seven saints from the cross? Why is that the exact order? So what do we do with all those questions that I've asked? How do we approach them? The same way as always, Pinky. We ask the reciprocal question, the reciprocal. The inverse. And then we accumulate the scriptures that directly refer, and then we branch out from those scriptures and find the ones that are tertiary that aren't as that aren't within the direct parameters but are still within the parentheses of that question for example let's just take the inverse for if i'm making the statement that the body resurrection coupled with life uh, proves existence i can i can invert that question what, uh, what would be the result, what would be the consequences if there was no body resurrection? What if Christ did not raise a single living being's body? He let them go and stay in dust. And now that brings up annihilation. How does the annihilation of the body therefore affect existence? If the body goes into annihilation, assuming that the body is left in the dust, and that's the same as annihilation, it's never resurrected. How does that affect your existence or the lie of Satan's uh, attempt to destroy the principle of existence? We know because we've had fantastic physicists, John Belby, and amongst, amongst them, uh, there was a great debate, I've mentioned it before, between Susskind and Hawking. Hawking thought that information, uh, called the black hole wars, the, Hawking thought that uh, information went into a black hole and could never be retrieved. And Susskind proved that information wasn't destroyed, logically. So we know that all, we, we all know that information cannot be destroyed. That principle is incredible. How much information is there? In one human body. How many pieces of information? I want you to consider that for a second. 
And, and just for another aside, annihilationism or annihilation is incompatible with omniscience. They can't go together. Once we do recognize that Christ is omniscient, that the Godhead is omniscient, the Elohim, the us, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, omniscient. Once we know that all are omniscient, then annihilation, it cannot be true. Why is that? Well, I'm making that statement as if I know it's right. Because why? Because, because I know it's right. But how do I know it's right? What's my logical progression? I digressed a little bit there. Sans rond. That's French from the seventh grade. I did not like my second seventh grade uh, French teacher. I will say that. She thought I was stupid. I was disinterested. There's the difference. Anyway, I won't get into that. Though it's hilarious. I got 100% on one of her tests. She didn't believe me. She was convinced I had to cheat. She said, it's not possible for someone who is obviously as dumb as you to get 100% on one of my tests. And I said, well, it was a dumb test. That ended my ability to get. She told me that I'd never be able to go to college unless I had a foreign language. They lied to us. They all they told us we had to take. I took German and French. What did I get out of that? That's correct. The occasional French word that I can use in a lecture. I'm very good at crossword puzzles because of that. But uh, I did not need it to educate myself. She lied. I won't name her. Very tempted. <laughs> but I won't. Okay, to reword the negative. I'm still bitter, obviously. <laughs> In all my teaching career, uh, I never told anybody that they were... Okay, I did. I told... I told teenage boys as a group that they were all stupid. But I didn't single anybody out. Okay, I did. <laughs> they were our children. but <laughs> Okay, I'm losing it now. And to reward the negative, if Christ did not resurrect the bodies of the dead, what would be the satanic accusation? Immediately you can assume or you can predict that Satan would proclaim that God is unable to do it. He can't do it. So he's unable or he's unwilling. One or both of those would have to be true if Christ did not resurrect the bodies. And there are many people that do not believe in theological circles, do not believe that Christ will resurrect a single body at all. They're confident that he will never resurrect animals. I mean, why would he do that? It's just his spirit. He'll just take his spirit out and the animal will disappear. All that information that is in the mind of that animal that is non-physical will just disappear. That's annihilationism. We know that's not going to happen. We can argue that against the character of God. character of God is always good. He wouldn't do it. He didn't do it. He won't do it. But if either were true that God is unable or unwilling, what's the conclusion that naturally follows that? The conclusion is, if you carry it to its logical premise, is that God is evil. And you have to be able to understand how to do that. And anything that makes God evil, of course, is satanic. And that's the purpose of the lie of Satan. Now, that Satan, is the, Satan has always said, I believe, from the time he began to consider his lie... That uh, if he could convince others that God is the source of evil, then he will demonstrate tremendous power. Now, some insist that the resurrection of the body is unnecessary. As I said, God, God will simply, he won't resurrect the body. He simply will construct an entirely distinct, absolute new body. Uh, that shares not a single atomic particle with the original body that returned to dust. That's what he will do. Now, the obvious question is, how would you define that? Would you call that resurrection? In other words, your body goes into annihilation. And he makes you a completely new one. 
And he takes your, his breath that is you, your person, your mind, and your consciousness, your memories, and he puts you into that new body. That's very common in science fiction today. I watch the stupid shows that do it. I can call Hollywood stupid, can't I? That's right. And it's just the truth. I mean, it's not an insult if it's true, right? Anyway, I'm having an interesting time today. I've probably lost. How many people have have clicked off now on Facebook? That was wonderful. Somebody pointed out. I wish I had thought of it. That uh, I got to do it right. Uh, YouTube, Twitter, and uh, Facebook becomes you twit face. And I wish I had thought of that, but I didn't. I hope I contributed to it. There's, I understand there's some real value to the Internet. There really is. Uh, we were learning that uh, in-person uh, educational facilities are almost extinct. They're certainly being affected by that. I don't need to go to a local uh, university. I can subscribe to the finest phys- physics instructors in the world. Um, and I, as you know, that's what I do. I do. I watch everything I can. And I, I get. I, my trumpet teacher lives in New Zealand. Um, things have changed because of that. And the uh, colleges and universities. How do you? How do you? I charge somebody $150,000 that can get it on YouTube. I mean, they're threatened. They have no idea. Anyway, now enough of that. That's, so, uh, what would you call taking uh, uh, the soul and putting it into an entirely new body? Would you call that resurrection? You, you, I, obviously, you wouldn't define it. What it would be would be creation from nothing. That would be more accurate, wouldn't it? He would create from nothing, which he perfectly can do. He certainly has the capability, but he says he won't do it. I am the resurrection and I am the life. Those are two things. I do them. So what, what, what they want you to think that, uh, that the body will never be resurrected, that uh, a new body will be completely made from something that has never been made before. It won't be taken from, some, taken from something that's already made. Like, for example, the matter in the universe, it will be taken from something, it will be made completely from nothing. Spoken into existence. See, if that's the way he's going to do it, if you grant that hypothesis, then John 11 would then require an amendment. He, Christ would have had to have said, I am the new body creator and the light. And I would uh, tell you that that obviously isn't what he wants to say, because... Uh, it, it would lead to all kinds of issues. Again, what would be the accusation from Satan against the goodness of God if Christ said, thank you, I see it, I am the new body creator and the life, instead of I am the resurrector and the life. He would ask again about the ability of Christ. Is Christ able to resurrect? The ability of Christ is a profound doctrine. Christ is able to save. If he is not able to save, then... He, then there is no salvation. They'll say, well, there's partial salvation. I would argue if there's not totality of salvation, then there is not salvation. Now they'll say, well, then what about uh, those who are lost? Again, totality of salvation, he has lost none who believe in him. The ability of Christ is critical for salvation, as is his willingness and so the omniscience of Christ makes John 11.25 the only possible modality, denying any other options. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. There can be no other way. Uh, his statement combining those two attributes, he is the only resurrecting one and he is the only source of all life. That's obviously something he said because he intended to direct it at who? Satan. There's no other possibility. Of resurrecting uh, and resurrection, our life, except through Christ. 
And that, of course, Satan's lies, Ezekiel 28:16, Genesis 3, 4, Psalms 10, 3 through 7, and Psalms 10, 11 through 13. If you've been listening the last few weeks, you should have those, um, those passages uh, well in place now. Next, we read the passages that are likewise obviously interwoven, clearly shouting out. Let me look at the time. Okay, clearly shouting out. Uh, that, that they are connected. They're demanding that we read them sequentially. So I'm going to do that. It's going to take up a little bit of time, not a whole lot. Let me put the glasses somewhere where I don't break them and drop them. So we're going to start at Deuteronomy 32, or 34, 7. Sorry, not, I keep doing that. I keep saying 32, 7 instead of 34, 7. Moses was 100 years, I'm sorry, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. That verse is so important to know that about Moses. And again, let's back up to five. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. Now go Jude 9. Jude 9 is unbelievable, as you know. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation. Deuteronomy 34, 7 and Jude 9, side by side. They're in sequence. Now, Matthew 17. What's Matthew 17? Well, that is where who shows up? Moses shows up here. So again, go find all of the verses and start looking at them as a unit as much as you can and then branch out from there. And behold, now Christ is, Christ is opening up and letting them see that he is the light of life from Genesis 1.1. He's the Shekinah glory. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light, as the light. The light is Genesis 1, 3. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him, with Christ. Then Peter answered and said to the Lord, or said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make up, (coughs) let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses. And one for Elijah. So now I have a Moses and Elijah put together. So I'm going to look at the death of Moses and I'm going to look at the ascension of Elijah. Both of them ascended, didn't they? Moses went up a mountain and Elijah went up in a chariot. Why did both of them go up? Why didn't Elijah go down into a valley? Why didn't Moses go into the ocean? No, they both ascend up. One to a mountain, one to in a chariot to the third heaven or the seventh heaven. So why? I submit that these three verses form the foundation of the question, why does body resurrection prove existence? They they are the necessary beginnings of it, if you will. From, From these three will flow all the remaining passages and all the other material that is involved here. The Bible, as you know, changing subjects, so I should remember, not really changing subjects, but pretending to change subjects, which is the same thing. The Bible begins with a what? When I say begins, I'm going to start at Genesis 3, with a trial. Genesis 3, 8 through 24 is a trial proceeding. It's a judicial event. It's a courtroom. I have a judge. The judge of all things, John 5:22. Jesus Christ has come there. He walked in the garden. He called out to Adam. There's great questions that are said there and answers there. He's the ancient of days. Daniel 7, 9 through 10 says this. The court was seated and the books were open. That's the actual statement of Daniel, Daniel 7, 10. The court is seat, was seated and the books were open. And, the, and Revelation 20.11 continues the pattern or the theme of that, the truth of that. God is a judge and he is the judge. He opens books. He conducts trials. Genesis 3.8-24 is the first recorded of that. But there are many in Scripture. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For what we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11-15. Each one's works will become clear. 
For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and fire will test. Fire test. And the fire will test each one's works. If anyone's work endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved yet through fire. Those, these verses in Corinthians describe the judgment seat of Christ, where I was hoping we'd all be today. But we're not. Well, if they are, the others are, and we're not, we're in some real big trouble here. But the judgment and seat of Christ is where the lives of the saved are going to be judged. The wood, the hay, the straw of your life will be burned. The foundations of gold, silver, and precious stones will be rewarded. There's a crown system. None will forfeit salvation. Make sure you know that. That's not a judgment of salvation. It is a judgment of your life's work, if you will. It has nothing to do with your salvation. The point is, yea, a point finally, page 10. It's about time that I gave you a point. It's about time. It's about space. It's about two men in the strangest place. 1965. Imogene Coca. Coca? Is that her name? You've got to be at least 60 years old to, to know what I just went into there. <sighs> Find my place. Get on the phone. Check the internet. Jesus Christ is the judge. The judgment of the nations will come. The judgment of the willful unbelieving is coming. The great white throne, the second death, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, where he's opening books. He is judging there. Uh, this is what he does. He, he, he's a judge. He issues clemency. He declares innocence. Or he declares guilt. And Christ will do this. Evidence is going to be admitted into the record. Witnesses are going to testify. Remember what he says about the Queen of Sheba, the men of Nineveh in uh, Matthew 12, 41 and 42. They're going to judge Israel. The saved, the believing, will judge angels. Why do we judge angels? Because it's a trial. And trials have juries and witnesses. And a judge. And a judge doesn't need the jury and, he may, and in the case of Christ, he doesn't need the witnesses. But why does he include them? He's omniscient again. Which, uh, that connects to Jude 9, the, the body of Moses and the bodies of all living beings. Genesis 7.22, to keep repeating that. Our bodies contain information, uncountable information. The brain, the heart, the most obvious of the obvious contains tremendous amounts of information. But also the trillions and trillions of cells, living cells. Sometime, and we did it one time, watch an animation of a living cell function. Just one cell, what's going on in one cell. Note the magnitude of that and then multiply it by trillions and now billions and billions of bodies. And that's just human bodies. You still have the animals. Those are living beings. Obviously, our physical bodies contain evidence, doesn't it? Because he says so. Fire test. I am the one that searches the minds and the heart, he says in Revelation 3. He's the one. Every thought is accompanied by a physical, chemical, electrical reaction. When he resurrects that body, he's resurrecting all of that information. Every piece of it. Is he able to do that? Wow, how is he able to do that? That's a lot of stuff. How does he do that? And all of that information is admissible in a trial. So don't take the trial aspect away from this. Matthew 17 and Jude 9 prove that Moses is one of the two testifying witnesses of Revelation 11. He's one of the two olive trees uh, olive trees? Revelation 11.4, Zechariah 4.3. I have two olive trees. He splits the amount of olives into two. Probably a coincidence. Because there's all kinds of coincidences uh, that are compatible with omniscience or not. 
And so Moses is one of those two. I'm telling you that Matthew 17 and Jude 9 prove that Moses is one of those two. And uh, as does Elijah, 2 Kings 2. Elijah's again ascension must, will, and does connect to Moses' ascension. Elijah's ascension will connect to Moses' death and burial. But why are there two witnesses? Why not five witnesses? Why not ten witnesses? Why not twenty witnesses? Why is there only two witnesses? And the witnesses are part of a trial system. Why don't I have 50 witnesses? Eventually I have the Queen of Sheba. I've got the men of Nineveh. I've got all the believing. The believing humans are going to testify against the unsaved, the, the fallen angels. We're part of the evidentiary segment of a trial. But there's two witnesses. Well, the first trial, Genesis 3, 8 through 24, how many witnesses did I have at that trial? I had two witnesses. I can name them, Adam and the woman, later Eve. And who did they testify? Who did they accuse? Both of them accused Satan, duh. Everything eventually gets back to Genesis 3. I hope I said that enough. How then does the body of Moses provide testimony against Satan? I'd be asking that for a friend if I had any friends. Repeating the question a little bit. Why does saved mankind? What are we doing in 1 Corinthians 6.3? What kind of information do we have that, that condemns or accuses of, of the fallen angels? What did we do different? Than them. Because you can see the, play, the process, can't you? Nineveh did something different than Israel. So they're going to accuse Israel. What did they do different? Jonah came to them, hated them, testified against them, wanted them all to die, and they didn't. They repented. Sheba comes from uh, Africa, Queen of Sheba. Many thinks uh, Ethiopia. And she believes. So what is the testimony? What is the, why is it so powerful? Will angels ever accuse mankind? Again, I have no friends. I'm just asking that. Obviously, the resurrection of the body and the continuity of the mind, the soul, and the spirit are interlocked here. What do I mean by that? Your thoughts, my thoughts, everybody's thoughts, animals' thoughts are spiritual. And they remain, they continue with our soul. Our personhood does not go to dust. It cannot go to dust. It isn't made of dust. What is our personhood made of? Tells you Ecclesiastes 12, 7. It returns to him that gave it. Where did he get it? It's his breath. Really fast, I should say here, body resurrection is tied to a trial procedure. The reason the body is being resurrected, the reason the body is being fought over is because there's a trial coming. Back to Ecclesiastes 12.7. Ecclesiastes 12.7 is true. Why is it true? Don't ever overlook the why of Ecclesiastes 12.7. I sort of answered that already, but I didn't really. Why does the body, or I'm sorry, the breath go back to God? Why doesn't he just take the breath and put it someplace? People say, well, he does. They put it in, uh, come on, I can do it. The bosom of Abraham. Paradise. But ultimately it goes before him. Why does he want that? Why even have this trial? Just do what he wants. But he doesn't. Why not? If he didn't have, do the inverse. If he doesn't have a trial, what would be the accusation? That he's not willing to have it? Well, why isn't he willing? Or he's not able to have it? It's the same accusation, isn't it? Over and over and over again. He has the trial because he demonstrates many, many truths. That refute many, many lies. So, as you're aware, there, there exists lots of heresies in the quasi-Christian church. My definition of quasi-Christian, I could call it somewhat Christian churches, are those who diminish the deity of Christ to a position where his godhood is minimized to, a, to effective erasure. You can't even tell. They believe that Christ is God. They don't have a deity of Christ position. If they do, it's so small you can't find it. Um, 
And that's what they think, and that's what they teach, and that's a precarious, to say the least, position. Because uh, Revelation 3, 8, 8 through 12, and Revelation 3:16 are side by side. Revelation 3, 8 through 12, when you keep his name, he tells you how valuable that is. And when you don't, that's Revelation 3:15 through 21. That's the vomiting out of his mouth. That's a stark contrast between those two in 15 verses there. With respect to the why of Ecclesiastes 12:7, um, they they don't like that the quasi or the somewhat Christian churches, the vomit church. They're going to propose universalism, rest, restorationism, uh, universal reconciliation, second probation. Um, they have all of these different ideas, and all of those essentially remove physical death as significant with respect to salvation. Physical death is fantastically significant to. Uh, salvation. Again, Ecclesiastes 12, it says, remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed. Right before death, remember your creator. It's the denarius. It's getting into the field just before the bell rings or the horn sounds and the divorce. But never mind. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed, before the difficult days come. That's a direct clear refutation of those false doctrines that uh, say that there is a second probation, that there's another method of salvation past death. And then Jude 7 and Jude 13 say the same thing. Oh, look, how close to Jude 9 is Jude 7. You, you see, the Bible uses the symbolism of clothing and nakedness, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4, describing the physical body as a tent, as a clothing. Death then would be the nakedness, the clothing um, of the, uh, the unclothing of the spirit, the soul, and the mind. The, the soul, spirit, mind, unclothed is naked, is waiting to be further clothed. That's how the Bible defines it and says it over and over again. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4, Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul, puts it right out there where you can't miss it. As a notation, Adam and the woman were naked as God defines it there. So figure that out. They've got to be connected. And those who are confused by the very meaning of physical death, the why of death, if you will, they also gravitate towards unconsciousness. They say you die and you go into a state of unconsciousness. The anesthesiologist community believes that they are replicating death. They aren't. What they're doing is affecting memory. It's a big difference. I can lose my memories and still be myself. I've said that many times. For example, what's your name again, young lady? See, that happens all the time. I forget how to spell words. I just can't stand it. I couldn't stand it today. That doesn't affect who I am, my self-awareness. But those who, who are confused with regard to death and salvation, they want to gravitate again. They move towards unconsciousness. And by this, I mean they believe upon death that the body goes into disintegration. And this places the mind into a permanent unconscious state. Semi-permanent or until God awaits or until he awakens it. But he doesn't awaken everybody, they'll teach you. Some he leaves in that annihilation state, or that state of unconsciousness. They never know. They never wake up. That's not what the Bible says. Again, there's a trial. Why is there a trial? Why is there resurrection? A trial is part of resurrection. And what they'll say, of course, is there's no continuity. In other words, you'll find it described as soul sleep. And no time, I'm out of time already to, to rebattle this. I've done it in the past. The Bible is clear. When sleep is used with respect to death, it is confined only to the body. The mind is unaffected because the mind cannot be affected by a physical process. The mind, Ecclesiastes 12, goes to him who gave it. Physical death has no impact on the mind, on consciousness. No one can explain consciousness. It's not mathematical. It's not computable. It cannot be explained. How come? Because it's not. It is something that we'll never explain. Obviously, angels being spiritual beings, they have recognizable form. They can be seen. They can heard. They can function without bodies. Soul sleepers, they argue that the mind, the consciousness is dependent on a physical body. If you're disembodied, then the, the, that's, they say that ends consciousness. There's just way too much evidence in Scripture to the contrary. Anyway, why is the body of Moses 
Let's start again. The body of Moses is important. The body of Moses is shrouded. Obviously, Moses was so important that God would not permit. He would not permit human participation. No human could participate in the burial of the body of Moses. He prohibited it. That takes us back to Job, which we have to get to. God prohibits mankind from knowing anything about the death and the burial of Moses. Now, who else did he prohibit from knowing? None are allowed to know where the body of Moses was hidden, except perhaps Michael. He might have used Michael to hide it, but he didn't have to. He used Michael to stop Satan, to confront Satan. He didn't need Michael to do that either. He did it anyway. It's part of Michael's process. It's part of Satan's process. God does things that he could do uh, universally. uh, And uh, he doesn't do it that way. He uses whom he has created. We know the general location of the valley where Moses is hidden. His body was hidden. Again, we've got Matthew 17. We have to decide, is that the body of Moses there? Or is that the disembodied Moses that we can recognize because he can still completely function? Just like Lazarus and the rich man. Just like Elijah. So how does that work? No, Samuel. Elijah and Moses together. Just like Samuel in front of, I knew I was immediately wrong. Um, When uh, Saul... And the witch, and that wonderful story where Saul was obedient going to death. And the witch was telling him he had to do it. Fantastic story of salvation there. Anyway, what happened in Beth Peor? Because that is where the body was put. Better obvious question. What happened first in the valley opposite Beth Peor that God himself would choose that place to hide the body of Moses? Remember, I started asking you, figure out why these places what happened? Do you think you just always oh, pick a place? We like that valley. What's going on about? What happened there first? Another f- couple of questions as we shut down because I'm way late. The Jewish commentators, the ancient ones, say that the body of Moses, the, that Moses' body died at the command, at the word of God. God's word did that. A sound from God. And no one was allowed to see it. No one was allowed to hear it. Who wrote that? It couldn't have been Moses. It couldn't have been anybody else. There's no witnesses. So who wrote it? Had to be Joshua. Should be the first verse of the book of Joshua. Most commentators agree. But the Jewish commentators, the ancient ones, the ancient rabbis say that Moses died again at the mouth of the Lord. They say it this way. With a kiss from the mouth of the Lord. That's how they write that verse. Boy, I think that's right. And when you know that, that Moses died with a kiss from the mouth of God, the breath, the mouth and the breath, and the word. I want you to distinguish those, separate them out for me. How did Adam, if Moses died with a kiss from the mouth of God, you would quickly attach that to Genesis 2, 7. And the Lord God formed Adam of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils. And I propose that the mouth as well, the breath of life. And Adam became a living soul. And we should have expected that Moses and Adam would have that kind of experience, wouldn't we? They would be very similar because they are separated, they are set aside. Okay, we're out of time. We'll leave a five or six... Well, 20 pages for next week. And we're going to endeavor to persevere. Okay, that'll do it for today. Thanks for staying awake. Again, if you fell asleep and I cured your insomnia, Medicare will pay for it. I am recognized as a solution to insomnia. How did I do? Oh, not terrible. All things considered.